Turn with me in your Bibles to Esther. Normally I like to put the text in or on your outline, but we're looking at three chapters today. Esther 3, 4, and 5. The book of Esther recounts events that happened towards the end of the Old Testament timeline. Now let's review for a moment uh, where the book of Esther falls in Old Testament history. Uh, you remember that Abraham was called in Genesis 12 out of the nations, and God put his hand upon Abraham to fulfill a promise he had made in Genesis 3 to bring one to crush the head of the serpent. And so he pinpoints this man Abraham, and from Abraham grows a huge nation. And as the Bible unfolds in Genesis, we have the story from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50 of God growing this family and fulfilling an immediate promise to make Abraham his seeds more than the grains of sand on the seashore, with Isaac being born to him, Jacob being born to him, Joseph and Joseph's family uh, being born, and then ending up in Egypt by the end of the book of Genesis. It looks like a great thing at the, book of, at the end of the book of Genesis because they've been saved from famine, and there's uh, this nucleus of a nation or, or a big family at that point in Egypt. But over the, the centuries, over the decades and then the centuries, Pharaoh forgot Joseph and enslaved the Israelites. The problem was there was two million Israelites by the time Pharaoh realized how big and powerful the nation had grown under him. And so two million in 200 years, that's exponential growth. That's divinely empowered growth. And so now you have this huge nation becoming a problem for the Egyptians. They oppress them all the more. God raises up Moses. And Moses leads God's people out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea after a series of divine plagues. And then they stand on the brink of the promised land. And the constant refrain is their sin and God's constant intervention to show them his, his grace. Uh, but Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land, but only to the brink of it. Joshua then is raised up as a leader. He brings the Israelites into the promised land. They don't totally exterminate everybody like they're told to. But in Joshua, it says that God fulfilled all the promises he made. And now Israel occupies their land. God's promise of land, people, and law are all given. And they occupy the land. And as they're there, they have direct rule from God. And they continue to sin. And God continues to deliver them by judges like Deborah and Samson and Gideon. And then, after a time, the people cry out and say, we don't want you over us like that anymore. We want a king. God gives them Saul, a vivid illustration of the failure of man. God then raises up graciously David, kind of the puny guy, and they pick him to be the great king of Israel. And things were really good for Israel under David in the first part of Solomon, his son's reign. But then as Solomon's heart started turning against, against God, away from God, the nation started to lose in its spiritual fervor. And the nation splits under Solomon's sons into the northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom eventually totally turns an apostasy away from God. And God brings Assyria in, the world power of that time, to capture them. And that's the ten lost tribes of Israel. They are assimilated by the Assyrians. No identity anymore. But the southern kingdom had a few good godly leaders, Hezekiah being one you'd be familiar with. And they maintain basic faithfulness for some time further. Well, in the world scene goes, Assyria loses to Babylon, who becomes the now the new world power, and Babylon is used by God to overtake the southern kingdom as a means of disciplining God's people for turning away from him. Jeremiah speaks of this, the southern kingdom being taken captive, known as Judah. 
And they're taken captive by the Babylonians and treated harshly to begin with. The book of Daniel lays that out for us. But a new power rose, the Persians and the Medes, and they got together, and they then overtook Babylon. They weren't as harsh with the Israelites. In fact, they were more pragmatic in their approach to rule. They had a bigger fear looming. That is, the Greek empire was starting to rise, and they were needing to, to plot and get ready to fight the Greeks. There was no chance of avoiding one another. They are on a collision course. And so the Israelites kind of fell into the background, and Ezra rises up and speaks to the then king at the time and gets an edict to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the Israelites are all over these provinces now. And many go back to Jerusalem to help partake of the building of the temple. But many were still in their other places in the kingdom. Susa, the citadel, the, the capital of Persia now, is where the king was. This is where Esther lived. This is where Mordecai lived. That's where King Ahasuerus was king and his throne was. The temple had been built back in Jerusalem, but things were not over. Pressure was still on Israel, still on the Jewish people. The walls had not been rebuilt by Nehemiah yet. And so you're in that time frame between Ezra and Nehemiah towards the end of the Old Testament timeline. That's where the book of Esther happens. Important for us to remember this. We have already met the king Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes in history. We've met Mordecai the Jew, who had a young cousin who he raised as his own daughter, Esther. Now we meet one of the slimiest characters in all of history, Haman. I will read just the first two verses of Esther 3 as we begin the study of Esther 3, 4, and 5. Hear God's word. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Let us pray. Oh God, you have taught us that we are most truly free when we lose our wills to yours. Help us to gain that liberty by continually surrendering to your word. Grant us this morning that we would walk in the way which you have prepared for us. And in doing your will, we may find our life through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen. We have already been introduced in this great book of Esther to the main players in this divine drama, this lesson in God's providence. But forget not the larger lesson that is being taught as we read this story of providence. That seemingly random events, even as in this story, the promotion of a powerful and prideful adversary, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into full human view. Even the little itsy-bitsy details of the story and the way relationships work and decisions are made, even the sinful emotions people sometimes have and exhibit and act on are still under the divine sovereignty of God and his providential plan and outworking of it. Let's look at this text together, walking through this wonderfully told story. One of the big challenges of preaching out of a narrative is not to say more than what the text itself says and not to get in, way, in the way of it. So let's try to do that. I'll do my best. Let's look at first... Haman and his promotion and his plot against the Jews, starting in Esther chapter 3. The first verse says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Amedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. We know that the Agagites were descendants of the Amalekites who were descendants of, the, of Esau. 
Now, if you're not familiar with that history, the Malachites are sharp enemies with the Israelites. They were supposed to be taken care of many different times in the course of, of the history of God's people. The most recent time was when King Saul had the opportunity to wipe out the Amalekites, and he didn't. Classic example, by the way, brothers and sisters, of what happens when God tells us to do something and we don't do it, or we kind of do it, you know, just a little, or it will always come back to hardship. It always does. It may not be tomorrow and may not be next month, but those seeds sown of disobedience will eventually cost. And in the case of a leader doing this, they cost big. Saul's disobedience, among others' disobedience, lead to this agagite rising to this place where eventually, at the right moment, Haman realizes who these people are, and those old instincts and those old traditions kick in, and the opportunity to wipe them out presents himself, and he goes for it. Look at verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Here, as you can probably tell, is where our story gets really messy. Everything to this point you can understand. You've seen despots in the world. You've seen how people will bow down to the, to the, the most unlikely people. We can understand that. But now you've got a whole group. Just imagine this sanctuary full of people down, not just bowing down, laying totally flat on your face, and one person just standing in the middle of it. And this prideful, powerful man goes by, and he sees this crowd and senses the awe and reverence they are exhibiting for him, but yet he always finds his eyes gazing towards a little stubby guy who's standing up all the time. Recognizes this. Others recognize it too. Look at verse 3. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? What are you trying to do is what they're saying. They spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. So finally, the text says, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. You could see the next time after they had told him repeatedly, all right, fine, we're going to tell Haman. They tell Haman. Now let's see how tough Mordecai is. What does he do? Still, verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Don't ever underestimate the length of the wickedness that is in the hearts of all of us, especially the one who is totally unregenerate and opposed to God in every way. You, there is no way to, to define how evil man can be. And so when he feels this personal pride and this personal pomp about himself and sees just one person who will not obey. He doesn't want to just stick it to that person. He wants to know anyone who calls that person a friend or a relative and he's going to take him out too. That's the evil that men will do when given the chance. And that is what floods the mind and heart of Haman as he sees Mordecai. He begins then to evolve a plan to exterminate Mordecai and all those who are related to him. Verse 7 gives us how he goes about this. The first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, pur, that is, they cast lots. Notice, by the way, this is the twelfth year. It was the third year that we started the book with. So many years have gone by. Many things have happened. In fact, we know from history that the Persians launched several little skirmishes to try to test their military prowess. Uh, they didn't go right over to Greece, but they would take small little outposts and try to fight them. They didn't do well. 
history says Xerxes suffered some small defeats. So he's in a bit of depression. Maybe that's the context in which Haman rises to the power that he does. And Ahasuerus seems almost detached. So now you have them casting lots to decide when they will hatch this plan, when Haman will hatch this plan to kill the Jews. Verse 7, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Casting lots often involves some kind of spiritism or occultism uh, that the, the gods, if you will, would help them understand what date uh, t- uh, would be the particular date of appointing. But what Haman didn't know when he was throwing those dice, essentially, is that God is sovereign over even those kind of evil intentions and actions. Proverbs 16.33 says, and I'm sure Haman didn't know, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is of the Lord, even those that you would think are done by evil people. Haman could probably do a lot of things without the king's permission, that's for sure, as a second in charge. However, slaughtering a whole race of people would have certainly required the king's permission, and that's what he needed. Now, there's a lesson here for us, because I think, and as I've read commentators, people will sometimes say this story is just too fantastic, it can't be real. Uh, As if it's impossible for someone to try to commit genocide. I find that striking today with all the history we have right before us. Uh, Some of you are alive uh, to see what happened in the days of Hitler. Some of you can remember the days not too long ago where we saw similar attempts at genocide within tribes in Rwanda. We saw it in Bosnia. The evidence is clear. People do this stuff. This is not just relegated to some biblical story. And they're still trying to do it in Darfur. And to a degree, you still see it happening today in the Middle East and in other portions. This is part of the evil men do. This is what we're really like without the regenerative power of God through Christ. Haman is totally believable. This is exactly the kind of thing such despots filled with pride and power do. So he has to get the king's approval. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, this is eerily familiar, this kind of argument. It's almost the exact same argument that the Jewish leaders brought to the Romans about Christ. He does not follow Caesar, the Jews say. He does not follow Caesar's laws. He does not give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And it would not be in your best interest to tolerate this guy. Look at the the further argument made by Haman in verse 9. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. This is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that he offers. And where is he going to get this money? From the plunder of those that he slaughters. And he promises to make the king just a bit richer. Haman's strategy needs no explanation. Sounds just like the accusers of Jesus with Jesus. And then also sounds just like Pilate, Haman's response. Look at verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. Notice, instead of saying, all right, Haman, draw up the edict and bring it here, and I'll put my signet ring and seal it on there. Instead of that, he says, here, take my ring. Go do what you want to do. In essence, this is your choice. I give you authority, but this is your deal. Verse 11, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems to you. King Ahasuerus gives Haman the authority to commit genocide. 
The king must think he's somehow washing his hands of this incident by refusing Haman's money and giving his authority to him. Then we see what probably takes place over weeks and months, the process of passing this official information on. And please note that it is unique to Persian rule, uh, not unique across the board historically, but in this time frame, to have an edict go out and be viewed as a divine ordinance. So this is why it cannot be rescinded. Uh, when it goes out, it's from the king who's a divinity himself, according to his own pronunciation in Persian tradition. And so to take it back would be to call into question this person's divinity. So when a statement or an edict goes out, it's a decree and it can't be reversed because it comes from the king. Look at how the development of uh, this media campaign happens to pass out and distribute this edict so people all know. Verse 12, And the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples of every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, 12th month which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That was in 11 months from the time that it was decided. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and de the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It took that long. Why 11 months out? It took that long to get every one of the 127 providences notified to this. They sat down and had a drink. Yet the city itself knew something was amiss and wrong and wondered how would you even fulfill this, this ghastly decree. So we have met Haman, and I told you he was a slimy character, one of the slimiest of all history. But we have Mordecai's counter plan, which isn't uh, what I would say... Uh, is wonderfully polished, but this is his counter plan. Look at verse 4 as Mordecai comes to understand what this decree means. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud bitter cry and he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now in antiquity, it was common during the time of mourning or a time of distress to take off your soft, comfortable clothes and put on clothes that were uncomfortable, like burlap with, with animal hair woven in it. And that's what sackcloth was. And why would they do this? Well, similar to the reason why you would fast. You would fast so that when you have a, a hunger pain, you remember the purpose of why you're praying and fasting. And your mind will constantly go back to it. When it's prone to wander, it will go back because of the physical feeling you have. That's what sackcloth does. It never lets you rest. You can't lay down on it because it hurts too much. When you lay down on it, it really hurts, and you'd grimace. And it would remind you of what you're protesting or what you're sad about or what you're distraught and distressed about. So sackcloth was put on as a means to keep you uncomfortable, to not just drift away from the seriousness of whatever the situation was. You remember Job doing similarly. Other places in the scripture, putting sackcloth on ashes, ashes ripping off the shirt that you have 
putting on something uncomfortable. And pouring ashes on one's face would just bring out the sullenness of your face and your features. And it would show the stress lines on your face. And everyone who saw you in sackcloth and ashes would know something terrible. Something terrible is on that person's mind and heart. And that's his counterplan. I'm going to go to the king's gate and just pour myself before. Has the king not thought of this? Is he, does he realize what he has done? And there Mordecai goes. Verse 3, and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Finally, word gets to Esther. Look at verse 4. Remember, Esther has not revealed that she is a Jew to anyone. No one knows this yet, except Mordecai. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, The queen was deeply distressed, and literally that means to the point of convulsing. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept accept them. And Esther called for Hathash, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Apparently she had not gotten the memo, literally. And Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him in the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king, beg his favor, and plead with him on behalf of the people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now I want you to notice as we look at verse 10 and following the first instinct that kicks in, and I think it's a wonderfully honest instinct in most cases, but it can also be sinful. It's that sense of self-preservation we all have. It's exceedingly strong. Even when we know there's something we ought to do that's right, we sometimes take a first inventory about what it means for us. How much trouble will we get in? Personally, what does it mean? And that, that's that thing that kicks in immediately for each of us as, as self-focused sinners, quite frankly. I'm not judging Esther. I do the same thing. When you get caught, what's the first thing you think of? How to minimize the damage, usually, to your image. Not about the glory of God being revealed and just open an outward repentance or admission of something. And her first reaction, her first reaction is much like what you would expect from a human being who's sinful, like us. Verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, now mind you, she just realized that millions of people could be slaughtered, and this is her reaction. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. It is to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out this golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not, I have not been called to come into the king these 30, in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. She's scared, and she's self-preserving. She's smart enough to realize, however, that she's the only hope these people have. Everyone's been identified. She's one of the few people no one knows as a Jew. And where is she? She's in the king's palace. She's his queen. Certainly, this, there's an easy answer to this as far as testing all the possible ways to get out of this dilemma. She's the answer. And her first reaction, understandably, is that could mean death for me if I go into his throne room unannounced or uninvited. Then come, I believe, in verse 14, 13 and 14 of chapter 4, two of the most profound verses in the narrative portions of the Old Testament, when we have Mordecai's answer to Esther. And it's something that causes us uh, 
to think and really mull over how this applies to us as God's people in this day. Verse 13, Mordecai receives this, and he says to Esther, very bluntly, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Don't think your, your sense of self-preservation is lying to you when it's up against what's the right thing to do. We're all kidding ourselves if you think that you can hide from doing the right thing. It will eventually come to you. You're not going to hide from this, Esther. You've got to think about this. Those are profound words. We'll return to it in a moment. Let's be real. You're going to get it too, Esther, is what he's saying. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This has a profound statement concerning God's sovereignty and his providence and how individual actions play into this, all by God's sovereign control. God will do what he wills, and his will was to preserve the Jewish nation until the time when Messiah would come. That plan would not fail, even with Haman, even with Ahasuerus, with the king. But an individual named Esther had an opportunity to do the right thing in that moment, and it made a difference for her and her, what it would happen for her and her family. So it's not that God's not sovereign, it's that we all have a choice to make, and the choice is, will we be God's friend or enemy? Will we, be, will we do what he wants us to do and wills us to do by his moral revelation, the word of God? Because he will accomplish what he has set out to do for his own glory. Are we on the side of promoting his glory, or do we try to stand against his glory? Because in the end, those who stand against his glory will be subdued. We will. Who do we stand with? That's the question for the church today. And the problem is, I think the church likes to stand in a place of neutrality in its mind. In other words, let's just get together on Sunday and talk about issues that we all agree with, but don't do anything when you go out of here lest you get someone upset, lest we lose our tax-exempt status, lest we lose something of our pocketbook. And I know this is true, brothers and sisters, because vote after vote after vote, we reveal actually what we want. We keep getting people that do not value life. We keep getting people who think it's okay to redefine marriage. We keep getting people that just don't want to shake the boat and want you all to come back next week. And in the meantime, who will stand in this time if we will not stand and say, this is wrong? Who will do it? And that's the same words to us. I can hear the Lord saying it to us. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for God's glory and his people, truly who his people are. It'll come from another place, perhaps. Maybe it'll happen in another part of the world where the church is rising and actually dying for what it believes. But you and your father's house will perish. Our time could be up, brothers and sisters, if we keep on this track. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. The time is now to stand up and start acting like the church. And I don't mean holy rollers that go and tell everybody how to do this or do that. I mean start acting personally like the church. I'm sure of this because you can see what we keep doing. I think things like political uh, votes and, and, and elections, I don't view them as a way to change things. I think they're the evidence of what the church really wants. That's what I think. We keep saying we want someone that'll pad our pocketbooks. That's what we care about. We say it by everything we do. By who We just continue. They'll say openly now, it's getting more and more dumbed down. It's getting more numb. We're getting to a point now where people just want it to stay the same so we can stay in the suburbs and we can enjoy our houses and our cars. And we don't want to stand up and say that this country will come under the wrath of Almighty God. And who are we to think that we are not going to be part of it? Does anyone think we're going to escape it like Esther thought she would in the palace? No, we will not. God will not be mocked and he will stop it. It's time, just like Esther realized at this moment, 
to stand up. And I don't mean just to talk. I mean to stand up as families and start being different about how we exert the kingdom of God in our own lives. And then as a church, as a community that's revived with this understanding, as a country, I don't think it's too late. I'm just saying we're going down the wrong path. All the signs are there. This is a message to Esther at a desperate time. I think it's true for us today. And take it down even more personally. You think I can't have that big of an impact on all the overall culture. Okay, start right in your office. Start right in the way you conduct yourself with your clients, with the people you serve, the people you work for. Start right there. Start in the simplest place that you can possibly imagine. That's what God calls you to. And then as people do that, that multiplies, it has its effect, and it makes a change. Such a time as this. Maybe, he says, maybe. He doesn't say this is, he's not interpreting for sure because God has not revealed that to him. But he says to her, as a point of thinking, who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe, Esther, all this stuff happened just like it did so you could stand up at the right moment. Maybe that's why you're here. Then Esther, in verse 15, told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went and did everything that Esther had ordered him. Esther, in her first, first real show of spiritual depth and sensitivity, takes her eyes off herself and realizes her need to do the right thing. It would not be comfortable. She might face social ostracization. She could face something worse. No matter what the consequence, she resigns herself. The statement, if I perish, I perish, is not a statement of despair, but rather one of resignation. I know now what I have to do. I've got to do it. I've got to do it. And that's what she does. She asks for a fast to be conducted and is determined to make her audience with the king. In a statement, resignation, not despair, she says, if I perish, I perish. Then we have the event, the dramatic pause, wondering what it is that will happen when she enters the throne room as Esther's uninvited audience with the king is shown in chapter 5. Look at the first verses of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. What a beautiful, dramatic picture of her standing there in this moment of wondering, would she be like so many others who were punished because they made an audience with the king uninvited? What would the king do? Humanly speaking, it seems like it all rests on his simple, personal response to Esther. Verse 2, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. A huge sigh of relief. He accepts Esther into his presence. You know, this episode reminds me of how often we approach God in prayer, too often with trepidation and fear. Will he hear my prayer? Will he listen? Will he accept me? And brothers and sisters, he has said to us in Jesus Christ that he accepts us. He has said, he doesn't hold out a scepter. He has his arms wide open for us to consistently and constantly come into his throne room. You know, there are definite parallels we can see about how proactive we need to be and how we need to make a change in this culture. But please recognize that we don't rest upon an earthly, despotic king to have his favor. 
The king's favor is in the heart, the king's heart is in the hand of God, molded and swayed every way he wants, just like the channels of water. Our king, God, gives us complete and open access to his throne only to ask him for the power to do these things. So I don't mean at all to give you a pep talk and tell you to turn around and go out and do it. I'm saying cry out to God that he would change us, that he would change our passions and what, what makes us satisfied to not be all the stuff we have around us, but to be Christ, to be satisfied in him. And we can go directly to God for this. We don't have to stand in trepidation wondering will he accept that's what's so powerful about the words of Hebrews. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is all because of our high priest, Christ. Look what Esther does now as she follows up, realizing she's been accepted and that God has given her favor before the king. Verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now you could probably see Haman drinking something, and, you know, spitting up a little bit when he hears, what are you doing? What do you give? What do you mean? And what does she say? What does she come back with? Esther answered in verse 7, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now it's not exactly sure, clear why it is that she waits another day and has another feast. I think very simply, just to build more rapport. Uh, she obviously doesn't have a close, intimate relationship with the king, and so it's almost like she's getting to know him well enough and then kind of, if you will, bringing Haman into it, knowing that Haman is the villain here. She's clear on that. So the seriousness of what Esther would ask needed time. And so she wanted at least one more day for them to think about it and how much they enjoyed uh, her company and then come back the next day. Well, Haman is pumped. I mean, how much better can his life be than to be the second in command with the power to commit genocide if he wants to, and now even the queen likes him so much that no one else gets invited but just the king and the queen. So Haman's plan and preparation to take care of that Mordecai personally now takes center stage. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that, day, out that day joyful and glad of heart. You could see him pumped, strutting out of the palace. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. I'm sick of this guy raining on my parade, is what he's saying. No more for this guy. I've had it with him. But he's smart enough to know that he can't just lash out right there. So he keeps it to himself. But he's brewing inside. We know this because it says he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Not just got a little angry. He was filled with wrath. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. In other words, he wanted to just go off. And he wanted people to hear it. And so he had his wife and his quote-unquote friends come in. And he just went off. Verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. Hey, I'm loaded. Who does this guy think he is? Uh, the number of his sons. We know Haman had ten sons. All the promotions with which the king had honored him. I'm the second in command. And how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Second over all. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come, into the, come with the king. 
to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow, I'm also invited to go together with him again. His pride could not be at a higher level. Haman's audience does no help. You know, what I hope you will do for me and I will do for you when we become puffed up with pride is saying is rebuke each other. But what do they do? Man, you're not going to let him do that, are you, Haman? Serious? You're going to stand by and that little guy, 100 people, ooh, that's bad. That's what they're saying. Look what, they say, look what it says. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Yeah, yeah, do that. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. You can enjoy the next meal you have because you're going to take him out. And the way you're going to take him out is build a 75-foot high gallows to hang him on so everybody can see what happens to the one who doesn't bow to Haman. Yeah, that's what you should do. Good old Haman. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Didn't say plan for the gallows. Didn't say in a few days he made the gallows. Said he had them made. That night, I, picks up the phone or whatever they had in Persia, the shell and the little string. I don't know what it was, but he calls and says, start building. And they say, and you can hear the workers, 75 feet, do you need to do that? I mean, we can just go over and take care of this. 70, no, I want a 75-foot gallows. No one would take all night to build this thing. So first thing in the morning, he would take care of Mordecai and then enjoy his feast that evening. To leave you hanging once more in a story, we'll come back in a couple weeks to finish, three weeks to finish this wonderful story. But let's close with this acknowledgement about the power and pride of Haman. Haman, as he is exacting his plan, calls to us, to our attention as believers, what God says about pride. Proverbs 11:2: when pride comes, then comes disgrace but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I don't care how powerful a worldly ruler thinks they are, they will not stand in the face of God and they will fall. The stage is set for the grand finale. We've met Ahasuerus, Mordecai, Esther, and now Haman. Remember this, that seemingly random events, even the promotion of a powerful and prideful adversary, bring all the necessary players in God's redemptive plan into full human view. Let's pray.